We are, excuse me, continuing our uh, time in John. This is our third week. Uh, John chapter 2, we're going to look at the first part of that uh, this afternoon. Verses 1 through 11 is what we'll focus on. If you remember, this is a series, I stole the title, um, Encounters with Jesus. Jesus is beginning uh, now uh, his public ministry, and he runs into people. Sometimes it's individuals, sometimes it's groups of people. He runs into them, and and he is telling us something about his ministry or about himself. Uh, John, in his book, doesn't use the term miracles. He uses the term signs. It's a sign. Jesus' actions are signs. It's pointing us to something about himself or what he's come to do. Other gospels use the term miracles, which uh, John certainly includes in his uh, term. He just uses a different one. Uh, so what we want to look for these next six weeks are what are the signs that Jesus is giving us? What is he doing? Why does he do it? Nothing's out of place. Nothing is by chance. He's in all his steps and his actions are intentional. So what's, he, what's the sign? What's he pointing to? <clears throat> Keep that in mind as we now read verses chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time today. Thank you for this food you've given us. Thank you for the blessing that it is to us. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to come upon us now as we read your word and study it. Lord, as you turn water into wine, as you make old things new, we thank you for that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. (coughs) Depending on your perspective, this is a good or bad thing. (laughs) We are entering into now the political season, right? Candidates for the 2016 election have started to declare themselves as presidential candidates. And clearly they take very seriously the way in which they announce this whether it's the venue that they announce it at, the things that they say, the manner in which they do it, the confidence that they exude. It's very important for a presidential candidate to come off well when they announce that they are running for the office of the president. In 1960, or 59, excuse me, John F. Kennedy announced his candidacy in January. He was sitting in the U.S. Senate caucus room and said, in the past 40 months I've toured every state in the Union, I've talked to Democrats in all walks of life, My candidacy is therefore based on the conviction that I can win the nomination and the election. The venue was important. The words that he said was important. His brother, Robert Kennedy, eight years later, 
was in the same U.S. Senate caucus room trying to draw on the, the good vibes that his brother had had eight years prior, same Senate caucus room where his brother had made the announcement. Ronald Reagan in 1980 announced in a very quiet setting in New York City. Uh, compared to other candidates, it was a much more subdued announcement. Uh, Bill Clinton in 1992 announced his uh, candidacy from the steps of the old state House Museum in Little Rock, Arkansas, being the governor of Arkansas. George Bush, George W., in 2000, announced, I intend to be the next president of the United States. I will run, and I will run hard. <laughs> Al Gore announced his bid for the 2000 election from Carthage, Tennessee, a little town in Tennessee. Actually, my dad and I, just a quick aside, uh, my dad is also from Carthage, Tennessee. He was a little playmate of Al Gore. I uh, thought you might like to know that, although he did not vote for him in 2000. Um, <clears throat> he announced it from his, his small hometown. John Edwards announced his bid uh, at the front, uh, in the front yard of a home that had been destroyed by Hurricane Katrina and many more that we could have mentioned. The point is this. Presidential candidates take, and candidates of any political office, take great care in announcing, I am putting my name in the hat for this office. No, Jesus is not running for a political office in John chapter 2, but nevertheless, it's important what we see him do here. This is his first public appearance or public display, if you will. His first miracle, his ministry began in, in our story last week. He's calling people, follow me, be my disciples. Rabbis did this all the time. They had a group that came and followed and did what their master told them to do. Jesus is beginning the ministry here. It's, it's, it's his coming out party. It's his first display. This is important. I'm not saying he put the same amount of time and thought into these events as a political candidate does. I don't even know if it's even right to think of it that way. But it's important for us to see this is the first thing he does. This is a sign, as John calls it. What is he signifying? What's he telling us? Let's look at this, surprise, surprise, in three ways. Uh, first is the problem. There's a problem in the story. The wine has run out. Jesus has been invited to a wedding. We don't know who this person is. Uh, we don't know if this was a family member or a close friend. It's not really important, but uh, he's been invited. <clears throat> John does not care to give us any additional details other than we know he was invited. And the wine has run out. This is a huge problem. It was a major social faux pas. It would have reflected negatively upon the bridegroom. This absolutely can't happen. Okay? If the wine runs out, the party's over, period. And wedding feasts back then could last as long as a week. So we've got a major issue here. Mary, Jesus' mother, clearly wants to help in this situation. Maybe she feels an obligation. Maybe she has some role in the planning of this wedding. That's only speculation. We don't know for sure. But she turns to Jesus and says, very matter-of-factly, they have no wine. Just thought you'd like to know. It's difficult to know exactly what Mary meant when she said this. Does she, what were her intentions? Was she asking Jesus to help? Was she just simply giving him some information we don't know? Did she know that he was God and could go to any lengths to remedy the problem? Again, it's just very difficult to say. Was it her habit to go, with Jesus to pro go to Jesus with problems as she may have gone to her husband Joseph, who we presume has passed away at this point? Clearly. Jesus was to respond to, was Jesus, clearly, however, Jesus was to respond to this exactly what Mary believed needed to be done. 
Whatever Jesus said, Mary believed that's what needed to be done in the situation. There seems readiness for obedience. That's the point. It was a complete confidence. Whatever he says, Mary says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. She's ready to obey. I think this is the first takeaway or lesson for us. She looks to her, his son, her son, whatever this man, whatever my son tells you to do, you do it. You obey his voice. Here's how Charles Spurgeon describes it. It is my first public declaration of the thing which looks to be unreasonable and seems to be unprofitable. Being commanded by God is law to me. If my master had told me to pick up six stones and lay them in a row, I would do it. Without demanding of him, what good will it do? Is no fit question for soldiers of Jesus. The very simplicity and apparent uselessness of the ordinance should make the believer say, therefore I do it because it becomes the better test to me of my obedience to my master. When you tell your servant to do something and he cannot comprehend it, if he turns around and says to you, please, sir, what for, you are quite clear that he hardly understands the relation between master and servant. So when God tells me to do a thing, if I say what for, I cannot have taken the place which faith ought to occupy, which is that of simple obedience to whatever the Lord has said. The point is, Mary is showing great and mature faith here. It doesn't matter what he says. It doesn't matter if it sounds unreasonable to you. It doesn't matter why in the world would I do this. Inevitably, the servants would think it quite odd to fill up these stone jars as Jesus is going to ask them to do in a minute. Mary's saying it doesn't matter. When you come to Jesus' word, when you come to the scriptures, inevitably you're going to read something that's like, why are we asked to do that? Or perhaps the Lord allows something to happen into your life. Why did that happen? What is he teaching me? This can't be right. Things can't be going the way that they should. But the obedient follower of God says, but he's asked it of me, and so I do it. He's smarter than me. He's wiser than me. He loves me more than I can understand. I'm going to obey him no matter what the directive is because he's my God. You remember two weeks ago, who is this Jesus that's giving these commands? He's God. He's the son of the living God. He's, he's man as well. He's the one that redeems and saves. He created. He's the one giving directives. It's not like you and me. Our opinions change. Our emotions change. Everything changes. He doesn't. Follow him because of who he is. Mary is showing this kind of faith. <clears throat> Jesus responds. He dresses her as woman. Uh, this is not a disrespectful term. In fact, Jesus will address other women in a similar way in chapters 4 and 10 uh, and 8. It's, one commentator said it's probably more accurate, dear woman or dear lady. It's, it's, an inter, it's an endearing term here. He says, why do you involve me or what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It seems like an odd response from Jesus. Like, did, did you misunderstand what your mom said? Why, what are you talking about this hour that's coming? Um, as Bruce Milne says in his commentary on this passage, Jesus' mind seems to be on something else than just the need for more wine. It's as if, his, as if this wedding has his thoughts elsewhere. We'll come back to that in just a minute. <clears throat> Jesus' signs are pointing us to something. So what is it? The first thing we see from this passage is the obedience that's necessary. Regardless of we, if we think it makes sense, it's coming from God, so we obey. We need to get to a place with our walk with the Lord that no matter what he tells us, we obey accordingly. Number two, the solution. 
The problem is that there is no wine, and they're not sure what they're going to do about it. So here's the solution. <coughs> Jesus gives somewhat of a strange response to Mary's comment, as we mentioned, but then he tells the servants what they must do. There are six large stone water jars nearby for Jewish rites of purification. These jars, when someone came in your house or someone came to the party, the water would be poured over your hands and you would cleanse them. It's not like you and I go into the restroom and washing our hands with, with antibacterial soap. Yes, it was cleaning the dirt off, but it was much, much more than that. They believed that their hands were ceremonially unclean. So it was literal dirt, but also figurative spiritual dirt that was on their hands. So they had touched a Gentile. They had touched something that was unclean. They needed their hands cleansed before touching food and then ingesting it. What is, what is likely here is almost like they were a surgeon scrubbing in for a surgery. They would take the, take the uh, soap or the, the water and they would scrub the, even up to their forearms. And they I'm gonna think, okay, I'm ready to eat now. Um, this is what it would have looked like. <clears throat> Again, it wasn't just the removal of dirt. It was a removal of a stain, a spiritual stain that they had collected. But it's no coincidence that Jesus used these jars. It's not that, oh, well, he could have used the cups over here, but no, he decided to use these jars. What is the sign? Here's what it is. Jesus is bringing the wine of the kingdom to replace the water of Judaism. The old way of cleansing yourself is gone. The new way of cleansing has come. This continual, repetitive, ceremonial washing of hands or sacrifices that really didn't do anything. It was just like putting a Band-Aid on a, on a wound. Jesus is saying, I have brought the complete sacrifice, the complete washing, one time, we don't need it anymore. So these, these, these jars of purif purifying water, they're done. All that is out with the old. <clears throat> when Jesus says, I have come not to abolish the law, to fulfill it. This is what he's talking about. I am fulfilling the ceremonies. We don't need them anymore. So when the guests would have gone to wash their hands later, they would have washed it with wine and not water. These ceremonial laws are now rendered useless. They're abolished. They're gone. Or excuse me, they've been fulfilled, not abolished. The sign that Jesus is pointing to here is the kingdom of God is at hand, and it is coming through me. You need me. You don't need washings. You don't need sacrifices. All that doesn't matter anymore. You need me. I'm the one that gives this for you now. <clears throat> Jesus has gone on to do the very thing that his mother seemed to be asking him to do earlier. So what's this sign telling us? Well, we've been talking about that. The old way of Judaism, the old way of these laws and rites, it, it didn't tell us how to fix the problem. It only showed us that we had a problem. Jesus is saying, I'm fixing it now. I'm fixing the problem that you had. Through his life and death and resurrection, eventually his followers are going to finally understand that that's what he's coming to do. But that's the sign that he's pointing us forward to in this passage. <coughs> there was a man one day that he wasn't feeling well. He couldn't understand really what was wrong, but he knew something wasn't right. So he went to the doctor's office. Walked in, the reception asked him to take a seat, and the doctor would see him shortly. And the doctor finally came out of it after a few moments. He introduced himself. He said, hi, my name's Dr. Law. Okay, come on back. Tell me what's going on. Dr. Law, I just, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just don't feel right. I can't put my finger on it. Can, can you just run some diagnostic tests here to, something isn't right with me. Dr. Law, scribbling on some 
papers, not really looking at them, didn't even really seem to be paying attention. He said, well, I know what's wrong with you. The man very eagerly, what's, what's wrong? He said, you have a black heart and you need a heart transplant. How, how can you tell that? I just, I, he said, I've been doing this for a long time. You need a new heart. Okay, well, when, can, can you do the surgery? How, how, how are we going to do this? No, I can't help you. Well, what do you mean? You're a doctor. Just take my, give me the heart transplant that I need. No, you need to go see the guy down the hall. Go see Dr. Grace. He tells him to go down the hall to see Dr. Grace, who was a far more kind man. He was very nice, shook his hand, looked him in the eye, welcomed him into the room. Dr. Law's right, you do need a new heart, and I can give it to you. So he puts him on the operating table, gives him the new heart. Thank you so much, Dr. Grace. I appreciate what you've done for me. Thank you for giving, taking my black heart out and giving me a new heart. Dr. Grace looks at him and says, now go on your way, but before you leave, stop by and see Dr. Law again. At least thank him for what he has done for you. And on his way out of the doctor's office, he stopped by Dr. Law's office, and Dr. Law seemed far different than he did before. He was much nicer. He was kinder, affable, talkative. What? what this, why this change? All of us need a new heart. The gospel initially is burdensome. It's bad. You don't like it. It makes you feel bad about yourself. It shows you that you don't measure up to the expectations of Christ and God's word. But that's what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to burden you and, and weigh you down. But I couldn't ever live up to that standard. You're right. And then Christ gave you a new heart, and you realized, you know what, this law thing is not a burden. This is how I express my gratitude and my thankfulness back to my Savior for what he's done. Inevitably, if he has loved you in this way, well, now how do I, how do I live for him? How do I thank him? So the law changes for you. It's now something that you delight in, and it's even your heart's desire. Lastly, what is the sign? We've talked about it a little bit. There's almost kind of two ways to look at this sign. One, it's these, how Jesus is tossing out the water of Judaism for the wine of the kingdom. He's saying these ceremonies are no longer necessary. I'm fulfilling them. But lastly, what did Jesus mean when he said that his hour had not come? What was he talking about? What was he contemplating? What does Jesus mean? It couldn't mean that his hour to reveal himself had not yet come or his hour to begin performing miracles had not yet come because he immediately does those things. It couldn't be what he has in view there. It also couldn't mean that the hour to begin his ministry had not yet come because, in a sense, he had already established that by calling followers and disciples. What is he saying? Well, he says in other places when Jesus discusses his hour or his time, he's talking about the hour of his suffering. Listen to what William Hendrickson says about this passage. This clearly indicates Christ's consciousness of the fact that he was accomplishing a task entrusted to him by the Father, every detail of which had been definitely marked off in the eternal decree. Jesus knew, why, knew when he had come to this earth, he was going to reveal completely who he was, and then he would suffer and die. But it was not time for that yet. The hour that Je Jesus refers to is the hour of his suffering, he had not, in fact, come yet, but perhaps he was contemplating that hour. Have you ever had something really big and important in your life that was looming in the future, and that's all you could think about? It was an exam or an interview or a test, a doctor's visit. Maybe it was some difficult news you knew you were going to have to share to a friend or a family member. 
And so many points in the weeks leading day, days or weeks leading up to that, you stopped yourself because you just kept thinking about it. You kept dreading it. You kept stressing out about it. Am I going to do well? You, you knew all the worst-case scenarios that might happen. You, you just stressed out. And you might even stop. Somebody, Andy, are you okay? You're just kind of there in a daze because you're thinking about what, what lies ahead. Could it be that's what Jesus was doing? He was contemplating his hour. After all, think about where Jesus is. He's at a marriage feast. He's at a marriage supper. The next marriage feast that he's going to enjoy is the one where all his people are gathered together. Revelation talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Everybody's gathered. He's at a marriage feast. There's celebration. He's one with his Father again. But what does he have to go through to get to that marriage feast? He's got to go through the cross. He's thinking about a marriage feast because he's at one. He knows the great stuff that's coming, but he's got to go through suffering first. No, I don't think Jesus was dreading or stressing about it the way that you or I dread or stress. But it does seem that this passage is telling us he's contemplating his hour. He's contemplating his suffering. Because that's the way he talks about it in other places. He knows the end goal of his ministry on earth. Yes, it's to conquer the grave and raise from the dead, conquer Satan and sin, but the cross has to come first. The sign of this first miracle is that Jesus knew that he was replacing the old with the new, which was himself. And that his ministry of, on this earth was one of redemption and salvation. I bet all of us in here at some time or another have contemplated heaven. You think about, what is it going to be like? What am I going to do? Am I, is it good? It's probably going to be so far more wonderful than I, I can't, my brain can't even get to thoughts like that. I'm going to see people I haven't seen in a long time. I'm going to finally get to see my Savior face to face. It's all wonderful, joyful thoughts. There are no tears. There's no pain. There's no doubt. I can worship him unhindered by any of the things on this earth. But guess, I have even better news than that. When you contemplate heaven and that marriage feast that's coming for all of us that are in Christ, you don't have a cross that you have to go through. You don't have, yes, you have the suffering and the travails of this life, but you don't have a cross and spiritual penalties that you have to pay for like Christ did because he paid them for you. You can think about that day with only excitement because you don't have a cross. You don't have something you must endure first like Jesus did. Randy Alcorn in his book Heaven says, Our minds are so much set on earth that we are unaccustomed to heavenly thinking, so we must work at it. <laughs> Think of heaven. C.S. Lewis says, in the truest sense, Christian pilgrims have the best of both worlds. We have joy whenever this world reminds us of the next, and we take solace whenever it does not. What a blessing that we have as Christians. that We can think on heaven, and it's all joy. It's all happiness. It's forgiveness. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can think about it, and it's all good things. We don't have a cross we must endure as Jesus did, but thanks be to God that he endured those things for us. Let that then lead us to the same kind of obedience that Mary clearly had. Did she understand all these things that we're talking about? Probably not. But her obedience is no less impressive. Follow him. Trust him. He's God. He's Redeemer. He's Creator. Yes, he's going to ask difficult, 
hard things that you're going to, your first response is, what for? Why? How come? Trust him. He's your Savior and your Redeemer. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much that we do not have to endure the death on the cross. Yes, we have to go through physical death, but it is in no way, shape, or form compared to what you had to endure on the cross for us. Complete separation from the Father because of sin that you took for us. Lord, that that would not just be knowledge that we hold in our minds, but that would spur us on to new obedience, deeper trust. Lord, thank you that you put away all the old, the old ways of ceremonies and washings and sacrifices. You have no need for those, and you do not delight in them, you say. But you delight in our obedience, and you delight in what your Son has done for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.